Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Leslie Browning. Her most recent book is To Lose the Madness, Field Notes on Trauma, Love, and Radical Authenticity. In this career-defining work, Browning explores the breaking point every mind has after finding her own limit during a gauntlet of traumatic events. Pulled out of the blast crater moment in her life by a friend, she's brought away from the insanity and deep into the snowy Sangre de Cristo Mountains, where standing in front of a herd of wild buffalo, she comes face to face with the terms we all must come to surrounding the loss we face in this life. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Leslie Brown. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And I'll tell you, you've written this book, To Lose the Madness, Field Notes on Trauma, Love, and Radical Authenticity. It's a beautiful book. And you know, one of the things, this is going to sound strange, but one of the things I, I like about it is the size of it. It's actually like, it, it's, 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 for, it's this incredibly heavy title, but the... It's a kind of a small paperback you could put in your pocket and something about it, it makes it very approachable. Was that intentional? Like the, the, as a publisher, I mean, were you thinking, were you thinking that when you, pub, when you, as you, you know, as you move from writing to publishing, were you thinking intentionally about the packaging like that? Yeah, it's a part of a new series, um, released by an imprint of homebound publications called uh, Little Bound Books. And the whole thing is to be digestible, something that you can read in a sitting. I mean, let's face it, nobody has an abundance of time right now. But at the same time, while it's short, it's something impacting. It's longer than a magazine you know, article would be, but it's way shorter than a book. So, And I also think because of the heavy nature of you know, the content, I think it needs to be this short or it would just be too much. Yeah, well, it's, I'll tell you, it, it is, it's a night, it's a great read. And I'll tell you, do you have the book with you? Could you read something for, from it for me? Let me grab a copy. I just assume, like, because uh, I'm so narcissistic, I assume if I had a book, I'd have a million copies of it laying around. Just <laughs> We just got the print run in advance and it just came to the house. So I will read at the beginning. I mean, why not start at the beginning? Yeah. So, could you read the part about the buffalo? I, I think this is like, I, 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 you had me at buffalo. I mean, this is so, so moving. So it opens in Cimarron Valley, New Mexico. The stark golden berries stretched out to the base of the eastern slopes of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Among the overgrown grasses, dry wooden fence posts rose. The posts were strung together by braided barbed wire that carried from one pole to the next. Just beyond the wire, we saw them, hulking, horned, billowing heavy breaths into the chilled December air. It was the day after Christmas. We traveled down U.S. Route 64 en route to Taos. We were just outside of Cimarron Valley in northern New Mexico when they came into sight. Buffalo, exclaimed Mallory and I simultaneously in the otherwise quiet car. A herd of brown, thickly coated bison flew by the driver's side window. Mallory quickly pulled a U-turn on the deserted country road. We got out of the car and slowly approached them. In the language of the Lakota, the name for buffalo is Tatanka. The buffalo was held in sacred regard by the tribe. The great animal gave everything it had to the people, its flesh for food, its hide for shelter and clothing. The buffalo stands as a symbol of self-sacrifice. It gives until there is nothing left. 
and in doing so makes life possible for the people. As I stood there, my creased leather boots breaking through stiff frosty grass, I looked dark eye to dark eye. A single female buffalo moved out of the herd and began walking towards me. I was transfixed. Here I was, broken, a shadow of myself, and she, a wild thing, untamed with strength untold. In the space between us, we spoke of ineffable things, of what it is to sacrifice all of oneself, of grief and gratitude and the terms every living thing must come to. That's beautiful. You know, it's interesting. I remember in when the book was written the lost dogs about the pit bulls that kind of were rescued from michael vick's dog fighting ring the author talked about how one of the reasons this story was so powerful is there, there haven't there aren't that many animals that are so close to us evolutionarily and, and you know maybe horses we don't really snuggle with our horses you know like <laughs> exactly but it, you know it's interesting because so that that these the suffering it, it, you know seems more tragic because the dogs are dogs are so close to us psychologically. But you know it seems it, it's wild to me as you open the book this way because you make this powerful connection with this wild animal that is beautiful and amazing and re- it's just yeah, and very it, moving. I mean, it's very it's it, it's it's unexpected. It's kind of unexpected way to open a book like this. Well, and, and it's even unexpected to run across them. I mean, so many things are ubiquitous. It's in the you know the animal kingdom that we take them for granted. But it is seeing a buffalo to me is like seeing an owl or something else elusive. It was just a moment of pause. This magical entrance of this creature. So, yeah, and then you 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 transition in the book from there to you actually you talk about this painful experience where you. Where you're actually, I mean, you write with vivid detail about this, about a miscarriage you had. Uh, and, and, and the, I mean, it was more complicated too, right? Because you had this cyst, uh, in a, in a sort of rare place that's difficult to operate, right? And, and, and so you're, you, you're, you're afraid the cyst is breaking. I mean, you, you don't know what's going on. And then you realize it's not that. And I mean, and then you're in this relationship that's kind of coming to a conclusion. It sounds like it was sort of a long, slow dying. I mean, it's it's just so much loss in such a short period of time. Yeah, which is what in turn led to the, like the nervous breakdown afterwards. But yeah, I mean, when I was writing it, I, I wrote you know an easier version to read. But then it was it was kind of like, well, am I doing justice to what just happened? I mean, sometimes you can't hold back, or you just kind of you know declaw what happened. Yeah, and and you, it's interesting because you. You talk about just the one of the things that I, I find I found incredibly it's very you were very articulate about not being able to share the grief about the miscarriage with your then boyfriend because of the way you both dealt with pain <laughs> and not be I mean I, was that it was that part of the unending of the ending of the relationship was hey like if we can't deal with loss and things like this in a way that is mutually enriching I mean where are we going. Yeah, I mean, I think it was one of those, we were friends before we got together. And, you know, I think we, we wanted to stay best friends. But at the same time, we both knew that as a couple, it, it just wasn't going to work because of how we dealt with these things. And before the miscarriage, we actually got the news that, you know, I wouldn't be able to get pregnant. And I think that's why the miscarriage came as such a shock. And we had to deal with that as a couple. And it, it kind of tested us because he was very much the strong, silent type, I think, as men are kind of socialized to be, 
So he needed to deal with it that way. And I was very much like, oh my God, I have to talk about it. I have to process it. And it, it was just two different personalities trying to deal with something and we weren't able to be there for one another. I knew, you know, when the miscarriage happened that I needed him to be there in the way that I needed him to be there. And and if I couldn't, then it was just not going to work. So I think I just bottled it up and just didn't even want to go near processing it and that I mentally repressed that it even happened for several weeks. So yeah, and then you had a series of other health problems, right? Within that same year, I mean, it, you you had this you had this fall, right, that led to this kind of fracture that didn't heal right, and the only way to heal it was was surgically. You spent you spent a year, right, trying to learn how to walk through through a, a, in this period again. Yeah, I was. Again. I broke. Yeah, I broke it. I broke the leg in three places, dislocated the ankle. I mean, it was just messy, and had to have the surgical reconstruction. And learn how to walk again. So it was this this succession of trauma that was just too much. And what at some point you're like, gosh, this is like I'm like freaking Job here. I mean, this is like, yeah. <laughs> like, why, why, what? Why me? Yeah, it was like okay, too much. I mean, and that was why the miscarriage was the you know the proverbial last straw. It was like okay, can't handle anything else. And and then you know you 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 talk in the book right that you have. You were diagnosed with CPS, CPTSS, or, or CTPTSD. Yeah. yeah, like CP, CP. This is so like the acronyms CPTSD, right? Uh, complex post traumatic. Are you like, oh gosh, I can't even have simple PTSD. I'm going to have complex PTSD. No, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, yeah, and, yeah. But but you talk about how PTSD. this connected to childhood trauma too, right? That this is like that it wasn't just the trauma of the of the previous events but also a kind of war zone of a childhood that actually you were dealing with it at the same time or that stuff it gets drudged up at the same time yeah well what happened was up until the miscarriage i kind of dealt with what was happening the way that most of us do and i just kind of put my head down told myself i was fine and pushed through it and that you know that is kind of how we get through trauma. We have to set aside our emotion for a time and process logistically what's happening. But I never circled back to how I felt about everything that happened. And there was, you know, multiple traumas that happened in my early 20s and teens that I didn't write about in the book because, frankly, like, I, <laughs> it was already heavy enough. And um, finally, that created an entire reservoir of just repressed emotion that I think the miscarriage was the tipping point for. Yeah, and then so then you went into therapy, which was kind of a mixed bag from the way you describe it in the book, right? I mean, it was, I mean, it was helpful, and yet some of it wasn't done exactly. Some of the therapeutic treatment wasn't perhaps done the exact right, right way it's supposed to be done, and so it was really disorienting, right? Yeah, well, the therapist didn't. You know, I saw multiple therapists, and I don't think they really had a sense of the reservoir of repressed emotion that was there and they kind of went too fast uh right after that the miscarriage which just you know destabilized me as a, you know in my life so they didn't take the proper time to diagnose and to process slowly in stabilization periods which you know are always useful so it, it was just kind of not realizing I didn't realize at the time that it wasn't being done as it should. And I don't think the, the therapist appreciated the magnitude of what was lying under the surface. So it, it just you know, came together to a perfect storm of, you know, 
they didn't take their time. And uh, but yeah, I mean, eventually it all leveled out through writing the book. Is is part of the pain of post traumatic stress disorder? I mean, I think. I mean, as a writer, you know the importance of like human beings living as, as as storied beings, right? We kind of make sense of reality by story. So like, you've got to be able to like look back, right, with perspective, and then also imagine something in the future so you can orient yourself to the present. But like, I guess with severe traumas, the past never becomes the past, right? It, it's always it it impinges itself on the present, so you can't. Is 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 part of the pain not being able to make sense of things, not being able to tell to get a story that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, when it comes to PTSD, it is a matter of getting sucked into past trauma in your mind and not being able to be present. I mean, the whole time I was in therapy, people kept telling me, Oh, you have to ground yourself. You have to ground yourself. And I, I honestly didn't know what that meant until finally I stumbled across it. (laughs) It was just, you know, not getting sucked in, to your mind and lost in thoughts of things that have happened in the past and being able to be present and in the moment and not in something that happened 10 years ago or five years ago. And, uh, you know, as far as like being a writer with PTSD, it's, it's a mixed bag because, you know, we have this wonderful imagination. That's how we, you know, are able to be storytellers. But at the same time, sometimes that plays out as, forecasting worst case scenarios in our head and having anxiety about them and not knowing how to process them. I'm one of those people that don't know what they're thinking until I write it down. So being able to write it all down kind of helped unnest everything that was happening in my mind. It's really interesting. You, you write that during you that during this time where you're really struggling, you came to see how quite easily people that struggle with mental illness can become homeless. Cause you say that, that as ill as you are, you can't work. And yet, given that mental illness still struggles to be regarded as a true illness and not a personal failing, it's hard to get financial support or medical leave. And then the small support system that you have, uh, while even if they're really loving and loyal, have their limits. And when they feel as though they've done all they can and the illness is still raging, they feel hopeless. Uh, and, you know, they go from helpers to, to necessarily sometimes needing to self-protect. And you just, it just, it, it, it just, right. It, it, it really just eviscerates all your resources, right? Like your material and emotional resources. Oh, exactly. I mean, the the few, very few people that stood by me through the whole process, which lasted almost two years. uh, I mean, they were just by the end of it, they were wiped. And, you know, these were people who I can count on for anything and, you know, family members. And, and it just even brought us to the brink and you know we'd already been through hell proverbial hell together so and you know you can't life doesn't stop (laughs) you know and it's one thing if you say i have cancer or i i have you know this injury then people give you the time and space you need to heal but if you're like well i'm having a a, you know a nervous breakdown or i'm depressed or you know then people are a little bit more skeptical to give you that space yeah and if you have cancer or something you're less likely to feel guilty right but do you struggle with guilt feelings like hey Am I a burden here? I mean, I is with mental illness is that you think that's more of a of of a struggle, like I, I feeling guilty for something that's actually you, you, generally we don't feel guilty about failings of health. But, but yeah, I, oh, I absolutely yeah struggled with guilt afterwards. And how did you deal with that? I just internalized it for about a year and a half. I felt guilty for 
breaking up with my ex. I felt guilty for being such a burden on, you know, my family and the the friend, one friend actually stood by me. Like I was going through this breakdown and wasn't strong enough to handle the miscarriage without having a breakdown because I was weak or, you know, what have you. And then finally I came to this realization of, you know, I didn't have the breakdown because I was broken. I didn't have it because I was weak. I had it because something horrible happened. Like I went through numerous traumas and then I miscarried twins and I had a breakdown, but of of course I had a breakdown. It was, it was almost a normal reaction to an insane situation. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. And you say that in the book, you have this chapter. It's really interesting called There's No Letting Go. And you talk about this sort of how therapists and gurus alike have this sort of let go or be dragged is the Zen proverb urges. But you say that there's not really letting go for you. Like that doesn't ring as true as you say dealing with trauma, in your experience, you learn how to carry it. And some days it's heavier than others, but that's, and for you, carrying is, is a better picture for healing than letting go or learning to carry and bear. Yeah. I mean, all throughout therapy. I mean, when I, when I told my therapist that I wasn't, you know, handling the therapy well, that it was causing emotional flooding and I was still struggling, you know, her response was, you will, you will be able to let go like letting go and being able to not think about it and not be affected by it and like that was the be all end all measure of healing and if I couldn't reach that place then I couldn't heal and so that was kind of a depressing thought you know if that if I couldn't forget that it happened and not care that it happened then I was somehow failing in my healing and realistically for me there was just no letting it go there was no reaching that place of indifference about it. It was learning how to deal with remembering it from time to time and learning how to deal with, you know, still feeling bad about it from time to time and not let the depression kind of pull you in and sink you, but just learn how to feel it and not be dragged down and learn how to carry it. 
Yeah, and is it? I mean, part of the problem is part of the problem with the letting go thing. It sounds like okay, if I'm not sort of in the lotus position, levitating. Like you're, I mean, right? That sounds like a subjective kind of measure, right? Like, how do you know? I mean, who feel who feels that way? You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's an unrealistic expectation. It's kind of like viewing the models in People magazine and saying, well, if you don't look like that, you're not pretty. And it's like, let's ground this in reality. Like, you're, I'm going to think about having the miscarriage. I'm going to think about what my life could have been had I not had the miscarriage. It's like, these things are going to happen. And recognizing that that is normal and learning how to handle it when it does happen is a more realistic idea of healing. Yeah, you quote Sheryl Strand in the in the section of the book. You say that uh, you... You'll learn to grieve what you, the life you didn't have, the sister life, right? The life, the life that could have been that wasn't. Yeah. Stray was kind of my, when I was uh, recovering from my leg injury and, and stuck in bed, I read Wild, her memoir. And in her memoir, she's very blunt. And I kind of, <laughs> I, I felt a, a kinship with her when I was writing this book because I was being extremely blunt about the, the subject matter. And she just puts things into words so well sometimes. You say in the book that, you know, when you were doing a book tour for, for your children's novel, you were, you, you were posed with this question, in a world where we are desensitized and saturated with information but little wisdom, what is a writer's place? And, and elsewhere there, you talk about how, like, how the internet and, and, and the digital world has promised all this connection, but most of us feel inauthentic, disconnected. And, and is that... It, it, is that part of your mission as a writer is is to tell stories that offer people the kind of connection and and authenticity and vulnerability that you that was integral to your healing i mean before the breakdown i wrote you know 10 books you know two novels and a lot of poetry and nonfiction. and for me while i'm proud of those books a lot of them feel theoretical whereas this one is i lived it I processed it. It's not neat and clean with a bow on it and answers and it's messy. There's little answers, but you know, this one, my story was something that people responded to. I mean, I I actually had no intention of publishing this book. I wrote it just to process. And then the response it got, I knew I had to publish it. And I think it's because while we are connected in the digital world, we're also honing personas we're honing social media personas. We're honing this idea of who we are, but not putting out who we are. And um, the book was just me being blunt, like, okay, I went through this nervous breakdown. I mean, here I am seemingly high functioning. I go to a rigorous university. I own a business. I'm a writer. I've won awards, you know, yada, yada, yada. But here I am depressed, suicidal. What do I do? And instead of hiding it, it's just here it is. It was time to own it. And that was how I was going to heal from it. Yeah, you know, I, I've heard some people say that, like, with Augustine, St. Augustine's Confessions, he's, some people credit him as sort of the, the father of the inner self, right? Like, the, and now, like, none of us could get through a week without thinking about the, like, hi, there's my inner self and then the self everyone sees, right? But I feel like it, in, in, in our sort of social media digitized world, right, there's almost three selves now. There's the inner self, the self, and then the projected self, like the avatar self that you're kind of, <laughs> you're trying to convince everybody is you. I totally agree. And then in, 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 tra- in traumatic events, right? I mean, the, just the inability to kind of keep conjuring that up is, you know, that it shows its thinness, I guess, right? 
Yeah. And it's odd, you know, when I, when I started sharing, which was then just an essay, not a book with, you know, friends and colleagues, I started learning more about them than I ever had. These are people that I knew for 10 years, some of them. And when I said, you know, oh, I'm struggling with all of this, and they came forward and said, well, you know what, I had a miscarriage, or I have depression, or I have, you know, anxiety disorders. And I never knew that. And it was, it was like my admitting I wasn't okay, gave them permission to admit that they weren't okay. And I think, in this society of the honed persona, you know, there's a gravity to authenticity. People are responding to it. People are responding to this book and they keep asking me, you know, oh, you know, why do you think this this book is different than others? You know, that kind of flew under the radar of mine. And I said, well, th- this was the only book I ever did that just scared the shit out of me because I was just being totally authentic and sharing every detail. And a lot of it was messy. Yeah, it's interesting. As I was reading, I was thinking of this Brene Brown quote where she says, you know, the thing about shame is no one wants to talk about it, but the less you talk about it, the more of it you have. Does that ring true yeah, in your experience? That, that, like, if, if you don't figure out a way to communicate and deal with the shame, it's almost like it's, it's like, it's, it's like compounded interest. <laughs> it, absolutely. The, the, I mean, the longer I kept things inside, the worse they built up. You know, I mean, I kept everything that was happening at the time, all, you know, the breakdown, the, the depression, you know, the, the, um, the suicidal mindset all to myself and you lock it away and then it just builds. And, you know, it was saying it out loud and people going, oh, me too. That it was like, oh, this is not as odd or dysfunctional as you might think. So I think talking about it removes stigma as well as shame. As someone who's written several books, is this, I mean, is this, you know, I'm sure you have fans that follow your work, right? I mean, is it, is it feel vulnerable to be, to be revealing this side of you that most people probably don't know existed? Oh, absolutely. I, when the book finally went to print, I kind of had that moment of pause, like, oh my God, why, why am I sharing so much of myself? You know, you're totally out there. Uh, and you do have this momentary thought where you are vulnerable, so therefore you think you're you're weak or exposed. But I've found that there's actually strength in vulnerability. And <laughs> this past weekend was the ultimate test. I had to give a, a TEDx talk on it at Yale and get up in front of a crowd and say things. I mean, two years ago, I couldn't say the words, I've had a miscarriage or I have depression to myself without having a breakdown. And then I had to get up in front of an entire crowd and be filmed during the TED Talk and say it. So it's just, yeah, it's scary, but it's worth it in the end. And, you know, in the book, you tell this story of this remarkable, I mean, how you see this buffalo is that you have this friend who decides over the holiday, over the Christmas holiday, right? You look, we've both got some time off. We never take time off. We never have time off to do stuff together. Let's just drive across the country. Let's drive to the Southwest. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, like, why are we doing that? Yeah, but, well, and, you know, and she was her, you know, Mallory, she was actually the one friend that stood by me throughout the two years when I was having the breakdown. And yeah, she was kind of the heroine of it all because she realized that I was just going through this unending 
grief of, you know, different things happening and all these things coming to an end and death. And it's like, let's go out West. Let's see something you've always wanted to see. Let's see a new horizon. And in doing so kind of reminded me that there are things that I haven't seen. There are things I haven't done. There are things that will start new. There, there isn't a second horizon, so to speak. Yeah, and you said you're ill the whole time, right? Like you're, you're like you're sick. I mean, that just that's all. You you talk about being in these dirty hotel rooms and you're just eating takeout food. You're sick. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, it, it's. I guess it's always darkest before the dawn, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I had some sort of flu. I don't know why. I mean, leave it to me. You just get sick during the one thing that's actually going to heal you. But yeah, there was a flu, and you know, I think it was. It was almost like you know a withdrawal. Of like all the the grief and turmoil is about to come to an end, and some of it like tightened its grip right at the end. But you know, in the end, it ended up being a healing trip, and I think it's because it brought this pause. Where yeah, after years of things ending, something new started. That's what I walked away with from that trip, and also the power of female friendship, because you know, Mallory stood beside me the whole time and never ran away and a lot of people did and you know i think it's i mean women and women empowerment right now is a huge topic and this happened a few years ago but it's just i think what we as women can do for one another is amazing yeah and i think in general adult friendships like intimate adult friendships can be hard to cultivate right especially if they're not lifelong like you know i I, like if they're not someone you've known your whole life you know that I mean, it, it, that's and yet that's I mean there's there there was an article I think in the Boston Globe last year about men about like how men are just suffering from loneliness but I think in general lots of adults right are just struggle with not having functional intimate relationships that go outside the family Oh absolutely and I had only met Mallory about 2 months before I had the miscarriage and had the breakdown so she was a totally new friendship and and we are isolated right now and I I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to publish the work was you know we are all isolated we all are you know so lonely and we're all pretending we're fine we're pretending we're okay we're putting up these personas for one another and I just wanted to be like put it out there and say, no, I wasn't okay. And I suffer from all this, but I mean, it doesn't define me. And if anybody else out there suffers from the same thing, you know, in me, you have a friend and, um, that has really resonated. And I've met a lot of people because of it. Yeah. I mean, is, is it kind of, I imagine that, that as the story comes out, like you, you have this bond and it's probably a little different than writing a novel, right. Or, or poetry where you're, where you're this vulnerable and and it, and yet there's lots of people with tragic painful stories that also know the pain of repressing them right it, it's just sort of like uh so you kind of almost invite your own island of sort of misfit toys kind of thing you know where people can actually be honest about their own vulnerabilities yeah i mean as i start to do events for the book i you know i was kind of wary because i knew people were going to come up to me and people were going to give me their worst stories after hearing mine and i i worried that it would be emotionally taxing and you know actually i have started doing events and people do come up to me and you know most of them just start right off with giving me a hug or just clutching my hand and yeah i get their worst stories you know the the miscarriages or the the near suicides or you know struggling with depression 
but it is not emotionally taxing at all. And I think it's because it's not fake. It's not, you know, just this shallow exchange. It's totally authentic, vulnerable exchange. And even though, yeah, it's emotionally heavy, the connection is rewarding because I think right now we're just starved for connection. Yeah. And you quote several times, you quote Judith Lewis Herman in the book, from a book called Trauma and Recovery. And you say that, she says that the conflict between the will to deny horrible events and the will to proclaim them aloud is the central dialectic of psychological trauma. And, and so many people, right, are living in that dialectic and don't even probably know it. Yeah, they don't. And I, and I did for years. I mean, for years, I tried to kind of smooth myself out publicly so that I would be easy to like and easy to interact with and not so odd that people would, you know, kind of like point and go, wow, she's weird. You know, and, and in doing so, I kind of, you know, lost who I am. And, you know, after the breakdown, I realized, you know, you can't change what has happened to you. You can't hide it. You can't spin it. You can't let it go. All you can do is own it. And that's what I attempted to do through the book. And um, now through reaching out and actually, you know, having conversations with people about what's going on. And you you say it's really interesting in the conclusion of the book, you you say this. It's very interesting. You say that as an author, you explore metaphysical and philosophical matters. And during the worst of what you've gone through, onlookers who have learned your story often comment to you that all the hardships you suffered were part of a divine plan for your life because something good came from each bad thing, as though a divine presence decided to teach me the great lessons through pain. And you're right. You say you're right for affronted by that. I mean, do you just want to say F you when somebody says something like that to you? I mean, that's, well, so when people try to say things like that, like to try to make sense out of the senselessness, that's just aggravating, right? Yeah, I remember someone actually, I was like in the hospital bed post-surgery, you know, with my leg totally messed up in a wheelchair, couldn't even get up to like go to the bathroom by myself. And they're like, this is meant to be something good will come from it. And I just gave them the worst look and had, uh, you know, internal comments that I won't voice on your show, but, you know, and, but, you know, I think that, that, that kind of mentality, yeah, sometimes good things do come from suffering, but I don't think it's because we inherently learn through suffering. You know, like I say in the book, I don't believe we learn anything from suffering. You know, if we did learn through suffering, we would be an enlightened society. I mean, we all suffer tremendously and not all of us learn from it. Some of us just become embittered by it or we think, well, because we've suffered, we can now just pass on that disappointment to others and not have to, you know, be nice to others and pass on compassion and uh, I think we only learn from suffering if we manage to transcend what is meaningless pain into something meaningful. You know, I did that through writing the book and, you know, now through, you know, talking with people. And we just have to find a way to take all the bad things that have happened to us and kind of almost roll it over into something positive. And it's work. It's not just a given that something good will happen. You know, there's this psychologist, Lewis Smedes, who and he's passed away now, but he, he, I heard him say several times that he was married, he's been married seven times to the same woman. And what he was saying was that basically most healthy marriages, that there are these 
deaths and rebirths or deaths and resurrections, right? Like you're, they're, they're like a really healthy relationship has to go, has, you have to let go of the old thing when things change, you know, and you say that something similar that, that every immortal being must die once to learn that it is immortal. One life ends, but another begins. Is, is this part of like the healthy journey of adulthood, accepting these deaths and resurrections that, that, and, and maybe are people, when people are really struggling, is it, do you think some of it is the inability to let go of what was and receive what now is? I mean, absolutely. If you, you know, it's almost like going at it from a Buddhist philosophy of everything is impermanent and that's very difficult to accept, but I don't think it's because we will just necessarily lose everything. It's, you know, things will come to an end and new things will begin or, you know, what, how, we interacted with the people around us or how we knew ourselves will change. And, and yes, you know, I've lived multiple lifetimes, I think in this one single body, you know, who I was two years ago, isn't who I am now, who I was 10 years ago, isn't who I am. It's all about how you view this kind of rebirth. And at the time of the breakdown, I did not think anything would get better. And if someone came up to me and said that kind of cliche of it will get better, things will things will get better, things will change, I probably would have told them to go away and, and you know, say they don't understand. But it does get better. It does. It, you know, it will never probably be what it was. You know, it's like I forget where I was <laughs> in the moment of my life before the miscarriage because it just that life abruptly came to an end. But, you know, a new life has begun. And it's not the same. It's not better or worse. I mean, I think I'm healthier now than I've ever been. But that's because I did two and a half years of work to redefine and re- be reborn, essentially. How do you experience the healthiness? Like, what's different, do you think, now on the other side of these, of these harrowing, just horrendous things that, that you've, you've, you've gone through and born? Like, what's... What does life look like on the other side for you now? I recognize that I wasn't doing well before the miscarriage, that, you know, I was depressed. I felt empty. I didn't, you know, know how to fix my relationship. I didn't want to lose my friendship with my ex, but I also knew that we weren't going to be able to be together. So we were both kind of in this limbo area and I, you know, neither one of us wanted to end it, but it needed to be ended you know, and you can stay in those, those limbo places for years. I mean, we did. And, and on top of that, I was, you know, I was suffering from various, you know, mental maladies like depression and anxiety and burying it and going through bouts of clinical depression and burying it. And, you know, I was repressing a lot of what I was feeling about my life. And it was just generally made for an unhealthy inner life. And now I'm aware when I'm in a depression, I'm aware of the relationships in my life and which ones need to end and which ones, you know, I need to explore. And I'm more willing to go outside of my comfort zone than I used to be because I recognize that, you know, sometimes what we need to flourish is outside of our comfort zone. And it's just about remembering what you're capable of. Yeah. Sometimes we forget what we're capable of alone because we're so used to having other people around us, but we can do it alone if necessary. Was dating or, you know, finding like engagements, romantic attachments, things like that, have they been different after like post sort of dealing with trauma stuff? Is that, is that a different sort of 
do you notice that search for love and connection feels different? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've only been in one relationship since the miscarriage and it's probably the best relationship I've ever had in that it's the healthiest, you know, I, I'm willing to be open and willing to connect. And, you know, I've grown as a person because of, you know, the new depth of connection that I have in my relationships and it's just night and day. And it is the difference between healthy and unhealthy and repressed and aware and, you know, living in something that had come to an end and living in something that is, you know, going to probably last for a very long time and is balanced. And, you know, I'm very grateful for where my life is at now. Well, I'm grateful that uh, you're in this place and thank and grateful for you sharing your story. It's a great book that you've written. And I hope that all the our listeners here will grab a copy. It's a, it's a really moving read and I thank you for taking some time to talk about it with me. Oh, thanks for talking. It's a great show. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Leslie for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, To Lose the Madness. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.